receiving a signal from another planet. Fanboy planet. Watch animated chicks with inflatable breasts. You might be a Trekkie. Sit back and watch as the Uber geek goes and kicks it up a notch. Turn to the left to F in your dictionary. And add this word to your vocabulary. Take a look, cause I'm the real McCoy. Damn it, Jim, I'm not a doctor. I'm just the definition of a fanboy, baby. Gilroy, two hours after I drove through Gilroy, 101 was shut down because it was flooded. Wow. <clears throat> and it shut down for like three hours, four hours. And, uh, and everybody this week in LA has been saying, oh, you came down at the worst time. I'm like, you realize you guys are still in a drought, right? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, Northern California, however, seems to be okay. Uh, I was, you know, and I thought, Rick, just because I, we're going to, I saw this little news piece up. Um, in our geeky world, the variety reports that uh, I'm going to name an actor, the movie series that he's up for. And then you're going to, I, I'm going to bet anything. You're going to immediately come up with which character that everybody thinks he's going to become. Okay. Peter Dinklage. All right. In Avengers infinity war one and two puck. Oh no. Okay. That's a good, that was, I, I no pip 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 the troll. Oh, pip the troll. Avengers Infinity War. Okay, I, yeah, I got it. Because, yeah, yeah Adam, Adam uh, Warlock's supposed to be. That'll be a stretch so. for him. Yeah, he's going to have to, he's going to have to, um, be a little more to, crass than yeah, usually. He's going to have to dirty himself down a little bit. He's, he's such a classy guy. <laughs> and Pip is anyway. just like a butt scratching, you know, nose picking. Right. Troll. I'm not going to call, I'm not going to call it real news. That's why I thought I'd bring it up top is because it's, uh, it's kind of even variety. It's like, well, it's early talks. I know early talks is early talks, and it's the first time anybody's mentioned a character like that. But Puck would be a good choice too. But when I saw it, I immediately went, "Oh, Pip!" Because yeah, I, I, I can see. We it. know it, we know it got confirmed that Aisha, so she is uh, or her right is the villain in um, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two because uh, a toy got released. Oh. Like a, a pop vinyl thing of her, and James Gunn had to say, "Yeah, they did so, make a reference to to um, him or the right, precursor the to, there, yeah, the cocoon." Yeah, but yeah. Uh, I hope yeah, they don't yeah, just skip him, see. him without her, or her without him. All these. Oh, pronouns. I would bet that. <laughs> I would bet that him is going to be in Avengers: Infinity War because that's probably where they bring in the Infinity Watch. They're right? going to be pronoun force. Because basically, Infinity War Volume One is going to be just 150 character introductions, and then the, cutscene for the next movie. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> the big red carpet. So we shall see. All right. So this is Derek McCaw, editor in chief of FanboyPlanet.com, and uh, thanks for listening to the Fanboy Planet podcast. Uh, across from me virtually, because uh, I'm in Los Angeles and he is in San Jose. Podcast producer. Floating along, Rick Brett Snyder. Is that like your new blues musician name? Yeah, floating along. Floating along. Yeah, I like it. I yeah. like it. 
so, uh, anyway, we've uh, got a little bit of uh, comics, movies, and TV stuff we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, it is Wednesday, January 11th. So this is the first official uh, podcast of 2017. And uh, so thanks for coming with us uh, on this journey so far. Of course, if you are listening to us on iTunes, please rate us, review us, and or subscribe, and definitely tell your friends. Uh, if we talk about something tonight that uh, you think you would like to purchase for yourself and you cannot find it at your local brick-and-mortar store, please, you can find the handy-dandy Amazon link on Fanboy Planet, and we get a very, very tiny kickback. And the more of those uh, usages of the link, uh, the less tiny our kickback gets. As well, if you'd like to help support the cause of our podcast and our website at fanboyplanet.com, you can uh, donate money through PayPal at editor at fanboyplanet.com, where you can also... Of course, if you have any questions, comments, compliments, commentary, criticism, write in to editor at fanboyplanet.com. I think I covered all that stuff of the begging for money. And now we can talk about what we got on tonight. We have a very special guest tonight. Uh, so I'm very excited that we get to bring him in because uh, this is like covering um, one of uh, Rick and my favorite, favorite topics to talk about. But also today... Uh, he is a newly minted. Uh, we'd like to introduce New York Times best-selling author on a technicality, David Avalone. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having <laughs> so, me on the show. This is newly minted. Is like today the day that you are today, officially that technicality? Today is the day. I saw it on Twitter. I'm uh, I'm part of a, an anthology called Love is Love uh, that was put together by Mark Andreco for, uh, to benefit the survivors of the Pulse Orlando shooting, very serious topic, but 250 artists and writers worked on it. So it's top of the graphic novel chart at the New York Times today. So I and 249 other people are now <laughs> New York Times bestselling authors. Well, you stand together, and I think that's yes. the point of the book as yes. well. Um, and and, and you... A few dozen of them are wildly more famous and successful than I am, so that may have something to do with it. This includes, um, you know, it's interesting because you got like Morgan Spurlock, mm-hmm. uh, Pat Oswalt is in there. Pat Oswalt's in there. Um, An old friend of mine. Uh, this is Jerry. probably the first uh, book in years in which both Grant Morrison and Mark Miller share uh, yes. credits on a book. Yeah. So. No, it's a it's a pretty and honestly, I. I came on board it. I will. I will be honest. I was asked by um, my most frequent collaborator, an artist, a great artist named Dave Acosta, uh, who I'm on my second series with now. Uh, he got asked to do it, and he sent me an email and said, "You're the writer. Can you write a page for me to draw?" And I was like, "Absolutely, love to do it." So, uh, so yeah. And there's so many people involved in it, even. Every list I ever saw was incomplete. So reading the book, I kept going, oh, Jerry Duggan, how great. You know, I kept seeing, <laughs> you know, friends of mine and people I've known for years and uh, people I admire. I was like, oh, look, it's a page by, you know, Drew Drogi wrote a page. I've known Drew for years. I was like, that's crazy, yeah, Rick, but that's great. Rick, have you got, did you get a copy of it? No, I did not. I did not. Okay. No, you know, because I, when I went to the comic book store a few weeks ago, I went on a Thursday, and that was my mistake. You know, yeah. Uh, uh. It, it was sold out. So I, I can't tell for sure if I have uh, 
if I have a first printing. Oh, I do. I found it. I do have a first printing. I was lucky. Well, but you I know the, it's to its third. Yeah, it is. You know the you know the thing that drives the collector market crazy. The first printing actually got to stores after the second printing. Wow. What? Yeah. <laughs> the first printing got held up and there were I don't know if it was on a Chinese boat or the, you know, I don't know what happened that held it up from getting the market. But uh, the first printing that arrived in stores was the second printing that got ordered after the orders were in for the first printing. So that explains how I got a first printing on the collector market. A lot of them are going crazy because they're like, well, but I bought the first one that was available and it doesn't say first printing in it. And the people that actually value this stuff through its least valuable aspect (laughs) are are all pretty upset. Yeah, are all pretty upset that they they own second printings of something. But I'm saying we we are comic book fans. We can keep it straight in our head. Yeah. That the second printing is virtually the first printing, right? And, and also must be the they, more valuable book. Yeah, and also they can they can always buy another one. <laughs> I think if you order it from Amazon this week, you probably are still going to get something that's going to say first printing on the inside. Because uh-huh. my I I bought um, they offered us comps, but I'm like yeah, it's a charity thing. That seems kind of goofy to do it for free and then say oh, and where's my forty dollars worth of comic books. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I bought four of them from Amazon uh, like a month ago. It's already out. It of, a- it's out of stock on Amazon right now. Oh, well, there you go. Then, then too late on that first printing. Everyone. But you can get the Kindle edition for nine fifty. There you go. That's nine ninety nine. Yeah. So yeah, you whole forty cents saving. But uh, yeah, we had a they had a signing for it at Golden Apple uh, a couple of days ago. Um, yeah. That I went to, or last week, I guess, last Wednesday, that was very nice. And uh, it was a very informal setup. There wasn't really a table. We were all just kind of standing around, and it got a really great turnout. And I happened to be standing talking to Jamie Rich, you know, Vertigo editor-in-chief, when the fans started assembling. So... I'm not really, I don't really have any prominence or name in the comic industry at this moment, but because I was standing next to Jamie, I signed a ton of autographs. <laughs> so that well, was, as I say, yeah. this week, you're a New York Times bestselling author. Right. So, so that was a, that was a useful placement. Everyone went, oh, did you write something in the book? Yes, I did. Well, sign my, sign my poster. <laughs> oh. Excellent. So it fun. is, it is a great book. And, uh, you know, we're, we're being jovial uh, about its success, and, and we should be, but I, yeah. I, you know, I'll be honest and, and say to people, um, it is a, a very moving read. Uh, you know, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a tough I was, read. Uh, I was I was tearing up at quite a few of the pages. You know, and all right, I have to, it's sort of like reading March. You know, I, I mean, honestly, you know, John Lewis's memoir of of the Civil Rights Movement in graphic novel form is like I have to keep putting it down because I can't. You know, it's a tough read in one sitting, definitely. So give yourself some space. Look at the sun and, and remember that the message of the book is true. Um, but some really beautiful stuff, and I really liked your page with Dave as well. So Thank you. Thank let's, you. Uh, yeah, let's get – I should say for, for Rick, what I was going to say is what you'd be intrigued is there's actually a page written and drawn by Jonathan Hickman. Ah. Yeah. And I've never seen Hickman do art. So it, it, 
it's uh, it's interesting. It's a very Hickman esque page, but uh, you know, and that and that's what one of the things I found really cool about this book is you know, there's some very mainstream stuff. It's a co production between DC and IDW, but there are characters. Kevin Keller is there from Archie Comics, and there are a few others that I wasn't super familiar with. But that, Patton you know, Oswald? that's okay. Yeah, yeah, Pat, Patton Oswald. Pat but, page. But I mean, uh, as far as characters, uh, there's a character from from the Spirit. Um, ah. A book, you know, that I haven't read, but I've been hearing great things about uh, Southern Bastards. Uh, Paul Dini and uh, Bill Morrison contributed a Harley Quinn Poison Ivy page. Yeah. You know, he, so, and it goes from being fun to being very personal, and yeah. it's 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 an amazing. If you uh, look at the comedy. if you if you look at the uh, the thanks and dedication page, there's a, I think there's a special thanks in there to Nick Barucci, who's. Uh, technically my boss at dynamite and i think dynamite's doing the spirit now so yes, even though it's yes. even though idw and dc published it i'm sure the artist I, and i'm sorry i don't remember who did the spirit page i don't think it was matt wagner or no maybe it was matt wagner i think probably someone asked matt to do it matt said i want to do the spirit and nick said sure fine <laughs> you know called the <laughs> license called the licensor up and got the permission or whatever um called up the i the Will Eisner's people. Um, but yeah, it is, it's interesting. I mean, of course, those of us who aren't uh, Matt Wagner, we're told your page must not include any copyright and uh, character. Uh. <laughs> like, we, were, we were given very strict instructions to stay away from that stuff, uh, but that's well, fine. I, you've got your person, second t-shirt at Comic-Con. Yeah. Those of us yeah. who aren't Matt Wagner. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we who are not Matt, Wag- Matt Wagner salute you. Uh, I love Matt Wagner. I'm a huge fan of his, but, um, but yeah, and that's, and look, that's fine. I frankly, me personally, I wouldn't have wanted to write a page of, and here's the shadow, you know, the shadow kills people with guns all the time. I don't, I don't think I want to write the shadows reflections on Orlando. I think that would be kind of gross. (laughs) So, I mean, and people chose to do things that were sort of like that, but I actually felt kind of relieved that no one said, okay, let's have the Green Hornet's thoughts on a nightclub shooting. I, I, that would have made me uncomfortable, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about uh, your work for your boss, Nick Berucci, at Dynamite, because the last time you and I spoke, if we can call this you know, semi-professionally, um, was about the, the shadow, the Twilight Zone, or wait, it's the other way around, right? The Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone, the shadow, yeah. Um, and how we were, you know, and you were gracious enough to actually just a couple of weeks ago, let me run a, a blog post of yours about the, the Nazi summer camp, right, uh, right. the research that had been there. And, uh, so again, you know, again, thank you for that. But there you are falling in with the pulp, pulp heroes. And I knew, uh, you had been a great fan of the shadow and I'll assume as anybody who it even just dabbles at writing as a fan of the twilight zone. Right. Oh um, yeah. <laughs> you know, so yeah, that, was, uh, and, that, that ahead. assignment was so, uh, nailing the story for that. And the pitch was so, uh, trying to think of the best word. It was so all consuming that I honestly, I was writing the second issue before I, before I allowed myself, before I had the conscious fan thought of, oh my God, I'm writing The Twilight Zone and The Shadow, <laughs> which in many ways are like, that 
I think I wrote something about this before, but that that's the alpha and the omega of my influences as a writer. I've had a lot of influences as a writer, but if you had to come up with, well, what kind of writing influenced you when you write excitement and adventure and thrills, it would be The Shadow. It would be Walt Gibson. And what influenced you writing things that are thoughtful and personal and socially conscious, that would be Rod Serling, socially conscious. Uh, so it's kind of a funny, you know, again, I have other influences, uh, lots of them, but those two are so like the two categories I am most interested in. And to be told to put them together, I, like I said, I was in the middle of the second issue when I went, my God, what a privilege this is to be able to work in both of these fields. And, uh, and particularly as a huge fan of Rod Serling, um, I approach this stuff a lot of times when I'm given these assignments as a fan in the sense that what do I want to read? What do I want to see? How would I... And as a Twilight Zone fan, reading a Twilight Zone comic book where you've been told that the parameters are, well, you can't use Rod Serling visually, you can't use any story or iconographic elements from the show except the title itself. And Francesco Francovilla, who did the beautiful covers, got to use the imagery from the opening credits. But that's it. So what else makes up a Twilight Zone story? And one of the things that I came up with to make it feel like the Twilight Zone is every issue starts and ends with a Rod Serling-esque narration. And... That's a tricky... I hope I nailed it. I tried very, very hard. It's tricky to not sound like a parody. You have to You have to not say, submitted for your approval. You can't. You can't do it. Because, right. come on. I did that in the solicits because I like to keep my solicits funny. <laughs> you know? Um, submitted for your approval. Uh, but I tried to right in the style that was recognizably Rod Serling. And I got a lot of a lot of the reaction from fans that at least I saw online, uh, people very nicely said, wow, you could really hear Rod Serling's voice saying these things. And, you know, I engaged, as an example, I engaged in metaphors that I myself would probably find a tiny bit over the top and creaky. But in that style, writing in that voice, they work. They don't yeah. feel over... When it's Rod Serling saying it in a Twilight Zone episode, you know, I think one of the episodes open with, uh, you know, Kent Allard has lived an uncanny life. The unusual, no, you know, the strange is his bread and butter, the macabre is the cream in his coffee. You know, like, I wouldn't write that necessarily <laughs> in something that was supposed to sound like me, but when it's Rod Serling, you can say the macabre is the cream in his coffee, and it's kind of great. <laughs> you know, and it kind of works. So it did work, and and the trade paperback is available now, right? I, yes. I, yes. I can't remember when it came out, but that that, ha that has not issue. that has not approached a second printing yet. So I think you're in good shape getting. Copies. Well, let's push that then. Let's yeah. let's try to get that, and then you go Absolutely. from that. So those are your influences. Then to yeah. let's get on to the real uh, meet here for us, uh, for Rick and myself, who are diehard from. Uh, I think Rick started at a younger age than I did, but not by much. Um, I inherited it from my dad. Yeah, me too. Of Doc Savage. 
Yep. So you are the new dynamite writer for uh, for Doc Savage with a miniseries coming out, or is it an ongoing? Uh, it's, a, mini- it's a miniseries. They uh, they approached me. Uh, I'm thinking it was a couple of months ago, and said, uh, "Give us a Doc Savage thing." Um, and I came up with three pitches because I'm an overachiever, and they they actually liked all three of them and said, "Pick one." And I, I, I picked what I thought was the flashiest one, uh, which is called Doc Savage Ring of Fire. Um, and uh, it's about Doc Savage goes looking for Amelia Earhart um, in the uh, South Pacific in 1938. And it, the title refers to um, volcanoes mysteriously exploding in the South Seas under U.S. naval bases. Because, of course, it's not a Dak Savage super right. saga if you're not, if there isn't some apocalyptic, crazy nonsense going on. So well, I was thinking, looking for Amelia Earhart is just not enough. No, it's not, a, it's not enough. Exploding. There needed to be a, there, there, there is a super villain, there is a super weapon, because there has to be. Um, and I, I'm, I, I'm very happy with it. The art by, I was looking at uh, the first few pages of issue two today, uh, and it looks fantastic. And issue one comes out in, I want to say mid-March. I think we hit the stands in March, on March 17th or something like that. I think that's I it. I think that's what I saw you post yeah. earlier. Um, yeah. And and so and that 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 art is of course again by Dave Acosta who worked yes. with you in Love Is Love and the Twilight Zone the Shadow, um, and you said this is taking place in 1938. So the thing that Dynamite has established is this multi generational Doc Savage thing. You're staying strictly in classic Doc. Yeah, yeah. I I asked about that. I sort of when they said Doc Savage, I said what um, you know what are my parameters? Where do you want me to go with it? And it, Joe Ryband, who's the editor-in-chief over there, the senior editor, is great, and he always kind of says, what do you want to do? What, what would, how would you like to do it? And I, I like very much what Chris Robertson did to bring it into the 21st century. I thought I actually reread those issues before I got started just to see if there was anything I wanted to, you know, do with those ideas. But, you know, there... Part of me thinks that I want to pick up a Doc Savage uh, comic book in... I I kind of want to see him in 1938 at the height of his powers, surrounded by the five. You know, I'm a huge fan of Pat Savage, so Pat is going to be in everything I ever do with Doc Savage because I, I adore her. And also, you know, six white dudes is not the most diverse action-adventure team anyone has ever devised. Um, so at the very least, I get to have uh, Pat there, uh, who I think is a very interestingly written character, even in the original uh, Lester Dent. I think there's a lot to her. I mean, and it might be it might be that I'm reading them from a modern perspective, though I did read them when I was a kid. But for all that Doc and his associates are like, stay out of this, kid. You're just a girl. She doesn't really behave like that. <laughs> you know, like, no, they... You know- they really come off like they're wrong about her, you know, and yeah. they sort of they sort of always grudgingly have to accept that she's really smart and tough and resourceful. And they're kind of stuck with that. None of them are happy about it, particularly 
Um, but I think it's interesting that's Roberson that Chris Roberson did that too. Is that Pat's yeah. the only other one who's almost immortal? Yeah, yeah. And you know, because she is the character that stays. And Rick and I have talked about this before, and I think Rick might know more about Lester Dent uh, as far as the scholarship goes. But I, sometimes I go back to these stories and think Dent was really, for all that he was writing very stereotypical stuff too. Um, there was something very ahead of its time with uh, Doc Savage, with the with Justice Incorporated too, uh, or can we say the Avenger? You know, um, mm-hmm. with Josh and and, and Rosabelle, and you know, my thing is a realization, and and uh, Brian Azzarello picked that up when DC had it, was that Doc is black. Hmm. You know, the thought of that bronzed by the many suns, it's like, well, you couldn't really say that. You wouldn't have sold that book in 1933. Right. He's certainly, whatever he is, he's not exactly white. <laughs> let's, just, <Yeah. laughs> let's, let's just say let's, that, you know. Let's put it there, you know, and that, and, and you know, I think it's interesting because you're, you're right. Pat Savage is an amazing, can we say, feminist heroine, you know. I mean, oh, she, to- she totally, though, you know, not to, not to get off on a tangent, and I promise I won't, but the... I've actually been thinking for years about the heroines of the 1930s, not just in not just uh, Pat Savage and Nita Van Sloan in The Spider, but also in Frank Capra movies. I feel like, in a weird way, women in 1930s culture were almost allowed to... Like, I feel like there was less of a reaction... In some ways, there wasn't a small vocal group of trolls hating on women <laughs> Ghostbusters in the well, 1930s. They didn't, they didn't you know have I mean? an internet. Right. <laughs> you know, no, that, you that had to tie a note to a pigeon's leg and right. hope that someone else picked it up. And did no, that's it. absolutely true. But I, I just, I feel like it's like, yeah, there was only one woman in every single adventure movie. But those women in the 30s were kind of plucky and great in a way that they then sort of weren't by the time you got to the 50s. Um it's something I'm always fascinated by the fact that King Kong has been made a couple of times, and in each version, the characters are actually less psychologically complex than they are in the 1933 original. And I don't know why that is, you know, in an attempt no, to make. Oh, you it, know why. Well, <laughs> it's, a lot of it has to do with talent. But anyway, not to get off on that, but uh, so Pat in the original novels is great. You don't have to really modernize her in any way and i made her very central to this story in that the opening this isn't a spoiler because it's literally the first page um the story opens with pat having a nightmare that involves amelia Earhart, and we 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 reveal that they were very close friends um so she's sort of the one that kicks the adventure off um and uh and in the pulps it is canon that pat was a flyer yeah. Supposedly, Monk teaches her how to fly, and Doc is pretty pissed off about that. Um, so I posit if she was a lady aviator in the 1930s, she was probably a member of Amelia Earhart's organization, which is called the 99, which was an organization of female flyers. And if such, who wouldn't be pal? Like, those two women would absolutely adore each other. Absolutely. And now we did touch on, you know... Uh, I'm mean, the only per- one of the three of us that came to Doc Savage um, just from being at PW Super and, and getting drawn in by the, the Devil Genghis. 
because um, you two were, it was both passed on, on by your, your fathers. And yep. uh, so let's, let's talk about this. You know, David, you're the second generation um, pulp writer, essentially. And so, you know, let's talk about that connection with Doc Savage. What, you know, what held it to your father, Michael Avalon, who was a pulp writer of the uh, 60s and yeah, creator of Ed yeah, Noon. He starts in 1953 and uh, with a pulp with a, a detective character. I don't know that he particularly, I mean, his very first published story, I should say, was uh, Weird Tales um, in 53. He got a short story published in Weird Tales, which is, a, so his first sale was to a horror sci-fi pulp. Uh, but honestly, he was trying to write serious novels and not doing great. And then uh, in 1953, he literally just looked at what was selling in the market and went, screw it, I'll write a detective novel. How hard could that be? And, uh, you know, 37 of those were later. It, I guess it wasn't that hard. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's similar to, you know, I think everybody who writes that kind of thing, you write enough of them. There's plenty of thoughtful autobiographical stuff in the Ed Noon novels, in the detective novels. I think if you're interested in writing serious novels and nobody buys your serious novels, you end up writing serious novels disguised as genre. If you look at Philip K. Dick, the early part of his career, half of what he's writing are pretty cheesy sci-fi novels, and the other half are actually pretty terrible, quote-unquote, serious literature. And he only becomes a great novelist when he goes, you know what? How about I put robots in my serious literature, and maybe I'll maybe that'll be a thing that'll be good. And all of his best novels, pretty much, are from the period. I noticed this for the first time. There's a book of his called uh, "We Can Build You," and if you read "We Can Build You," the, you know the front cover tells you, "Oh, this is a book about a a man who makes robot replicas of uh, Abraham Lincoln." If you read the book, it's about a man who falls in love with his business partner's 14-year-old daughter. And when I finished it, I was like, that was just Lolita with a robot in it. Like, why was there... I'm not entirely sure why there was robots in it, but he clearly wanted to write that story, and no one would buy his Lolita ripoff. Uh, so he well, I'll give it a robot Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> you know? So, uh, That you makes know, everything better. It's just uh, we all, you know, we all meld our obsessions with our adventure stories, I think, is is <laughs> is what I'm coming down to. But uh, to, to go back to it, Dad grew up reading them on the stands and in the 70s and late 60s when Bantam did the reprints, we had all of them in the house. And even before I read them, those covers, the James Bama covers, are oh, yeah. so compelling. And, the, and, and Dent... Like Ian Fleming, like I'll even say my father, had a great grasp of titles. He really knew how to give you a title where you go, wow, what the hell is that? <laughs> you know, even yeah. before I had read any of them, I probably could have recited off the top of my head a dozen Doc Savage titles because they're so memorable. So which one was your favorite if you had to pick one? You know, I've been rereading them and I think that's muddied the water on... Uh, reading them as a kid. Uh, and I also say, if I tell you which one I, I like the most, I'm going to give away a plot element in uh, Ring, <laughs> Ring of Fire. Ring of Fire. Let's just say I really like The Fortress of Solitude and, and move on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and not let people 
linger too long on wondering what that means for Ring of Fire. But yeah, I like that one. I like uh, Resurrection Day. That's my it's favorite. Great. Death in Silver is great, and some elements from Death in Silver show up uh, in this. Uh, the Helldiver submarine plays a big part because it's a South Pacific adventure, so obviously we need submarines. Um, yeah, it's probably those right off the top of my head. And I'm I'm slowly buying more of them and rereading them. And it, I'll be honest, it started as two years ago I did a Doc Savage one-shot and I wanted to refresh myself. So I, I, I have a copy of the Philip Jose Farmer, Doc Savage's Apocalyptic Life. Life yeah. Took that off the shelf, gave that a reread. And I went, ah, let me, you know... Let me dig up some of these Savage books and reread them. And now I'm kind of like I'm key. I'm still reading them. <laughs> so it started. <laughs> it started as a research thing, and the same thing with the Shadow. When I got the Shadow assignment, I started reading, rereading old Shadows, and they really, they kind of hold up more than I expected them to. Yeah. You know, there's 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 still compelling act. Every once in a while, you you know, and. They definitely read, and honestly, some of my dad's stuff reads the same way because they were written under the same time constraints. They read, they read like quickly written first drafts. <laughs> you, know, they're, you, you hit stuff where you go, yeah, you just waved yourself past some plot holes there. Good for you, you know. Um, but they're they're tremendously entertaining. I have one last question for uh, for Doc Savage. If if uh, you, know, you get a chance to continue, do, do you have? Because I think most writers approaching it uh, now have the, there's this temptation. Do you have a John Sunlight story? Uh, this is where I whistle a tune uh, and say nothing. Derek, Derek, <laughs> Derek, 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 you missed la, it. La, 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 la. You missed. Yes. It. Yeah. No. That was the that that was implied earlier. John Sunlight's yeah. the the villain. In, That's right. I'm sorry. Yes, in yes. Portraits so of Solitude. Yeah, yeah I yeah. He's, he's because only, I got only villain who shows I came up. Came out backwards. He's the only villain yeah. who shows up in more than one Doc Savage adventure. Right, I know of he the original. And, and if you read The Devil Genghis, where he is, which is ripped, the first book I read, at, he is ripped to shreds at the end of that. But let's just point out that Doc loses sight of him for a little while, and then he is ripped to shreds <laughs> about 100 yards away by a large crowd. All right. So, yeah. you know, you know. I think DC used him, and I think I, uh, Rick... Oh, Lowe yeah, he's, he's, you have to use him. He's great. I he's, think Marvel used him as well. Yeah, he's, he's, yeah. Ernst, he's Blofeld, he's Moriarty, you know. I'm going to talk Sherlock. Yeah, he's right. See, did you like my transition there? That was good. But yeah, no, every doc, I mean, it's actually one of Doc's sort of, uh, and everyone who ever wrote Superman or James Bond or anything, you, you run into this problem. How do you, I mean, especially Doc Savage, how do you come up with an antagonist for the guy? He's ridiculously perfect. No one's going to be stronger than him. No one's going to be smarter than him. So... A lot of the Doc Savage villains, uh, I mean, I love Death in Silver, but the end of Death in Silver is essentially, and I would have gotten away with it too if not for you crazy kids. Uh, he, you know, he sets up this really fascinating cult of men in silver costumes and who are they and where do they come with? Yeah, it's just, you know, just an evil industrialist. You know, it's, it's just, it's, it's, 
he didn't have a lot of antagonists that were worthy of him, as great as the books are. Um, well, you say, you know, that, that didn't even come along for a couple of years in comics. Yeah. Even later, you know, read, I, I, I should say I made the mistake, but I bought, you know, the DC archives of like Golden Age Flash and Golden Age Green Lantern, and they had not figured out supervillains. You know, nobody was worth it. They were always exactly just saying, even Batman, it was the case of the chemical syndicate. It's a, it's an industrialist. That's it. Yeah, and, and, and you know, it's like, and, and I, I feel like the movies, the Batman movies, have partially had that problem of he's a hard guy to have a good villain for because essentially he's not Superman. So you can't, well, so he stopped the bank robber. Hooray. You know, it's not, it's not that consequential for a $200 million movie. And sometimes they have tripped in my opinion, badly trying to give a human running around in an opera costume a suitably baroque, powerful villain. You know, it's a it's a it's a cha- villains are a challenge, and their plan is a challenge. And one of the things that I like about Sunlight is the motive. I always think that if you write a villain, there should always be a moment where he says something and the audience goes, well, you raise a good point or a gold finger. I mean, I, that movie, the example from that movie, it's an amazing moment of post-World War II nihilism when Bond says your nerve gas attack is going to kill 60,000 people and Goldfinger makes a remark about highway fatalities in the United States. Like, yeah, what's 60,000 people? Come on. That many oh, people... Yeah. That many people die in automobile accidents, and you go, "Wow, that is that is crazy," but it is a coherent philosophy. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I just saw a, an article with the headline about self-driving cars saying that the, the drawback is that our organ donors will drop. Yeah, <laughs> how's that for an I'm idea? Like, I know. I'm like, what are, what world are we in? But yeah. I get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So sunlight, you know was always a little bit impenetrable, but in the last, in Devil Genghis, if I remember correctly, he's trying to, he's, like a lot of psycho dictators, he's like, this will bring on world peace if I'm in charge and take over everything, right? Isn't that, isn't that what you well, want? Don't you want yeah. an end to war? You know, don't you want all of this squabbling to be over? You know, so, he's a he's an interesting cat, and, uh, yeah, you'll be seeing Tom Shunley. <laughs> all right. Okay, sorry for my thickness. Only one cup of coffee. Let's talk comics, Rick. Uh, and David, you are absolutely welcome to stick around. We're going to talk a little, just like to do our comics recommendations of the week, uh, and and talk uh, a couple of reviews, and you know, pitch in or uh, you know, just say. Uh, I'll stick around and hear what you have to say. <laughs> All right, thank you. Maybe you'll like it. I don't know. So, Rick, let's play. What's in the bag? Though it's not much of a bag for me because being in Los Angeles, I, I try not to buy too much away from Elusive. Um, what's your recommendations? And I'll say you can go back two or three weeks if you have to. Because oh, a- really? Uh, I I, I would have, but I last time I did that, you scolded me. So um, well, I'm scolding you for the opposite. Uh, You're married. You know how that goes. I, go. We're not married, though. Please. Um, okay. No. So my first one this week is probably uh, one we've discussed. We've talked about the fact that it's coming out. Uh, this week we got uh, Felix Leiter uh, from Dynamite, uh, the the uh, offshoot of the, the James Bond. Uh, Strictly coincidence that we have a Dynamite writer on the show this it's week. Stric- and, strictly and is that, 
And is that James Robinson? It is James yes, Robinson writing it. And it's Derek. James is an old friend of mine. He's great. He's a great guy. Um, we love James. The uh, we don't see him near enough. The the thing about this is Derek pointed out on the on the uh, on the website is that Robinson is leave, and when he's done with this, he's going to go off and do Nick Fury. Yeah, I just saw that. That's great. And the uh, I'm thrilled because the art the artist who's it's a three letter name, all caps, so it's got to be some kind of a a something something is definitely. Asia? Aja, not Aja, no, David Aja, who maybe going by one name. I don't know. Maybe. Um, oh, it's the same guy who. It's the same guy who's doing uh, Nick Fury with him. No, that's that's what I was saying. The Nick Fury is done. Is oh, done, okay. Is done in a very Stranko esque style. I'm very excited. Yeah. The Felix Leiter is not. It's it's much more. Um, it's a grittier style. Uh, and it, it is, but it is the uh, lighter in today's world, maybe 15 minutes into the future kind of stuff, because they get into his prosthetics, his post uh, live and let live die, and let die prosthetic yeah. uh, necessity. And he's got like a bionic arm and bionic, bionic leg, um, which is fe- featured on the front cover. But I'm looking forward to that. Well, I will have to go back and pick that up. I, for whatever reason, missed that. And, uh, yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know that was out yet. I definitely want to pick that up. I'm. I don't know how the continuity in the comics works. I still. I read some of the James Bonds, and I still haven't figured out. Are we supposed to be just after the novels, but not, or after the John Gardner? But like, I have no idea why M is an African American or an African British dude. I guess. Um, Money Penny seems to be the Money Penny from the current movie series. And when did Felix Leiter, when did Live and Let Die take place that Felix Leiter get his arm and leg eaten? Yeah. Because yeah. that, that hasn't happened to Jeffrey Wright yet. <laughs> you know? Uh, and Jeffrey Wright is definitely not a tall, sandy-haired, uh, blonde dude. No, no. Like the dude from the novels, which is the, the character in the James Robinson one. So it's interesting. I think this is just like a sort of a consistent characterization thing. Mm-hmm. They're sticking to... Uh, I don't think they've the, made a uh, made any kind of effort to fit it in anywhere in the prior no. works. They've just kind of like modernized. It's almost like um, it's almost like what Gardner did when he brought it up, um, or actually not. Um, it's not Gardner. Who was the one who came after Gardner? Uh, I can't remember. I stopped. He's the guy. Wrote, he's the guy who wrote the bedside reader, and I I know him. I've I've met him a number of times. Um, anyway, uh, oh uh, Bruce J. Rubin. Nope. Nope, nope. Oh no, the bedside reader. Yeah, um, and he also he also wrote the uh, the role playing game. He wrote uh, a couple of source books for the role role playing game. They came out. I'm dying, dying, wow. not being able to. I'm trying to stimulate my brain and figure it out, but I'm not. It's not working. I understand. Well, then I you know I'm gonna I'm gonna come right back to you because we've already talked about my uh, my first recommendation, which is. Uh, to take a shot at getting love is love. Uh, aside from just, we, we've talked about it extensively, but it is, again, a beautiful book and serving a great cause. Uh, I, I do love that when okay, all proceeds from the book go to the victims, survivors, and their families. Uh, so, um, again, I, I stress this is a beautiful, beautiful book. So I'm throwing it back over to you, Rick. Okay, so my second book... Um I've got three comics and a, and a plus, plus one. So I'm going to just go through the comics first. So the second one is Steve Rogers, Captain America, number nine, um, which 
Uh, I think the, has the controversy worn off on this book now? Because no one's talking about it. No one's talking about it. Good. That's too bad because it's like one of the best uh, Captain America runs in quite a while. Uh, because of... well, my son did mention it. My son did mention that he was still concerned that Captain America was evil. Oh, okay. Well, Captain America is not necessarily evil. When you when you read the story, he's just had his perspective switched by the uh, mm-hmm. by the cosmic cube. Um, and uh, without no, no spoilers, I'm just saying if you're not reading this 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 book, we're into nine nine issues of it now but it's really an evolving story and a, and a nice twist on the uh the master plan of the villain going awry in ways he couldn't have possibly figured out um, and it's going to lead into secret empire their next big crossover. Uh, okay i didn't know that now wasn't yeah, secret wasn't secret empire the jack kirby thing in the 70s that led to richard nixon shooting himself in the face Yes. Which is maybe my favorite Captain America moment ever. The time that he made Richard Nixon shoot himself in the face in the Oval Office. Do you know that story, Rick? Yeah, I do. (laughs) I do remember that. Uh, It was the same same era as uh, Swamp Thing fighting a bunch of cultists who all looked like Richard Nixon. Yeah. It is kind of a fascinating historical... It is a fascinating historical footnote if they're redoing the Secret Empire story now. Yes. Like, not to get political, let me just say that and we can move on. Yes, let's move on right after we say not to get political. (laughs) Yeah, but it's, you know, the last time time they did that story was during Watergate. Yeah. Right. Mm. Mm. And now it's just Watery Gate. Uh, yeah, so there we go. <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, but I've been challenged. Uh, so uh, my second recommendation uh, is, and I got to remember the title. Uh, is this is a graphic novel adaptation of one of my favorite science fiction novels, Kindred by Octavia Butler. Butler. Yes, uh, saw that on the stands today. Uh, although I shouldn't say on the stands, on a shelf. It's it's a hefty book. It's twenty five dollars. It's from Abrams Press, but it, it, it's. Uh, it's a work. It's a novel that was very much ahead of its time. It's a very challenging work, and I'm I'm really looking forward to reading a, the graphic novel adaptation of it. Uh, I, I, Rick, are you are you familiar with Kindred? I haven't read the book. No, no. It's a, it's a it's about. I think it took place in the '70s because I think she published it in the early '80s. Uh, about a, a a woman in Los a black woman in Los Angeles in the '70s whose white ancestor, every time he faces uh, a danger, is starting in like the late, maybe early 1800s, um, every time he faces danger that would have killed him, she gets pulled back into time to save his life. Oh. And then gets stuck for years at a time in the South, pre-Civil War. And... It's a very, uh, you know, very challenging novel about just preconceptions about why weren't more people, uh, why, why weren't more slaves revolting? Why, you know, why was this, why was this uh, society allowed to flourish? And it's very interesting coming from Butler, who herself was black and and uh, a lesbian, so she her work is very, you know, very challenging in its in people's notions of diversity. Uh, and unfortunately, she she passed away a few years ago, way too young. But um, really tremendous writer. So really, 
it's great if more people pick this book book up because of a graphic novel adaptation. I'm all for it, and I highly recommend that people read it. And and who's the get who's the artist on it? Uh, I don't have that name because uh, I, I I had to leave it on the shelf today because I tried to keep keep my budget, but I'm going to be ordering it and, and uh, pulling it pulling it later. So it's a uh, it's kind of a, a little bit of a cartoony look to it, but uh, but still very. You know, it's a hefty book, and uh, and and, and, a, and a decent decent looking art. So, <coughs> a recommendation. Third so, on yours, Rick. I was I was just looking up the artist on that, but uh, John Jennings is the art. John Jennings. Artist. Okay, good. Thank you. So, all right. My third book, and. This is a risky, risk, kind of a risky uh, recommendation because even though the first five issues of this were uh, just incredible, and the six is obviously taking a big turn, and that is All-Star Batman number six. We finished the Batman and Two-Face road trip uh, storyline from All-Star Batman 1 through 5, which was just mm-hmm. phenomenal. Uh JRJR doing the artwork on it and uh we we got a that gave us a new and kind of twisty interpretation of uh of Two-Face where there's actually a cooperation going on between the two personas inside his head and now this is leading into Ends of the Earth which is uh what Batman villain would you put Batman fighting at the Arctic Circle in the Arctic Circle no, I, I'd assume Ra's al Ghul. Ah, no, you'd assume wrong because you would you would obviously um, put Mister Freeze, Mister Freeze. Freeze. Freeze, exactly. Yeah, right. We got it. Um, the artwork is the artwork is uh, very. It's oddly enough. Oh, hell, no, I'd, I'd I'd make him fight John Sunlight. Okay, <laughs> I was there. just gonna say John, <laughs> John Sunlight is who Batman. And, fight and he the fights Arctic him for six months straight because there's no sundown. <laughs> the right, the right. Sunlight. There you go. Um, yeah. So, uh, this uh, this this uh, All Star Batman though has been has been a really good book, and it's still Scott Snyder, and there's a backup uh, story in it on this the new the new sidekick Duke who is uh, yeah getting his his like uh, changing, origin in there the changing of the concept yeah Scott Snyder by the way also has a page in Love Is Love yeah. so uh, great great story there. All right, uh, I'm going to go uh, also with the DC book, um, which is, for those who are fans of the TV show Supergirl, I think a better way into the character than the, than the ongoing book itself, which is good. Uh, there's kind of a year one thing that they launched, I think it was last week, called Supergirl Being Super. And it's kind of out of continuity. Uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't deal with Clark Kent. It doesn't deal with the shadow of Superman. Instead, it's just a, a really, uh, really good story dealing with uh, with Kara coming to Earth for the first time and learning her powers without anybody else to guide her. So I guess kind of an Elseworlds, but they're not using that imprint anymore. Um, so it's uh, written by Mariko Tamaki and art by Joelle Jones. And so I, it, it is also a beautiful looking book and one I was most looking forward to reading this week. So I want to throw that in there. And then you have an extra. I do. So, um, this was an easy buy for me because I, I am a real big HP Lovecraft fan. 
and Chaosium Inc., who have for years done uh, the role-playing game Call of Cthulhu and a lot of uh, mm-hmm. collections of Lovecraftian and, and other mythos writers. Um, R.J. Ivankovic, Ivankovic uh, has written for them H.P. Lovecraft's Call of Cthulhu for beginning readers. <laughs> and That's pretty funny. I wish this. I I I this. I wish we were doing visuals here because this is a oversized book um, that looks, for all intents and purposes, like anything Doctor Seuss might have put together, uh, including the art style, the page layout, the phrasing of the the and the lyrical. Well, we will put a link up then and. Um, uh, People can see it that way. Yes. Uh, it's just all the characters in it, um, the postures, the uh, the faces, everything just the, just reeks Seuss. And it is a really faithful adaptation of the story, Call of Cthulhu, um, which you don't see a lot. Um, people, people, I don't know how many people who say they like Cthulhu have actually read that story. Which is told in a, in a in a couple of smaller stories inside of the the, the short the novella really, uh, right. yeah. So um, yeah, I love I love that story. I hadn't heard of that book. I'll have to take a look at that. That's just funny. came out. It's only available through Chaosium Inc. You have to uh, okay. Uh, you have oh, to go okay. to Chaosium dot com and order it. All right, then we'll we'll still figure out a way to link that in. Um, Maybe Cthulhu himself can give us a kickback. <laughs> All right, then. Uh, so speaking of works that everybody thinks they know, uh, is let's talk TV. I'm going to skip over the other thing and say, running short on time here, is to say uh, we're in season four, hopefully not the last season, uh, of, of Sherlock, uh, which is apparently you're, you're much better guided if you've actually read the... Uh, the original Arthur Conan Doyle stories, um, and yet maybe not. There's some some big twists. I, I thought I don't, I don't know, Rick, if, if you're still watching The Good Place, but the there was a joke last week that said uh, they sat down to watch uh, their favorite BBC comedy, which had uh, been running for 18 years on the BBC, and they were up to almost 20 episodes. And <laughs> I thought that was a direct dig. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Sherlock. Yes. <laughs> so, Funny. Best joke of the week for me. Uh, but here we are with one one week left of, of Sherlock until until Marvel is through with Benedict Cumberbatch's Doctor Strange, I suppose, since he's going to appear in every movie they <laughs> make in the next uh, next five years. Um, is he is he going to be in Ragnarok? Yeah. Is he? Okay. He's, he's teased at the end of Doctor Strange. I thought the tease was. Oh, yeah. I guess so. Um, yeah. yeah. No. Apparently, yeah. There's been a leak that uh, Rag that uh, Doctor Strange is much bigger in Ragnarok than people thought. Okay. So essentially, it's sort of like the Defenders with Thor instead of Namor and Silver Surfer rolled into one. So sure. But they can't call it the Defenders, <laughs> and it's not. Defenders and it's not a Netflix. Going to Netflix. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Which I suppose today they just announced. Gee, what a surprise! There's a, a new Defenders comic coming that is Daredevil, Luke Cage, Power Fist, and Jessica Jones. Uh, so what a surprise. Um, it's kind of funny but, because you, what you do to get the defenders is you take heroes for hire, which never get paid for the work that they're hired for. You take Jessica Jones who always gets paid and you add daredevil. So yeah. 
Now it's it's okay. the well, defenders. It's well, they they need a lawyer, obviously, to collect their pay. Must must be <laughs> exactly. must be. You know, to, to sue people that don't pay them. You know, that's there's a certain kind of. There we go. Yeah. A gripping courtroom superhero drama. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. so getting back to Sherlock, um, I don't know what we've we've now seen the the six Thatchers and yes. the lying detective. And I don't know if you hang out in the same uh, internet chat rooms as I do. I'll write there. Right there, I'll say no. Okay, I don't <laughs> hang out in any internet chat rooms because there are a lot of people who really hate Stephen Moffat. I am. Yes. Not, I am not one of those people. I, I like Stephen Moffat. I, I'm not just from Sherlock, but you know, uh, I can start just listing off stories, uh, things he's been involved in. And if you look at series four, the first first one was written by Mark Gaddis, and I found the Six Satchers to be a little bit opaque, hard to follow, and I, I found it disjointed. Yeah, and I'll tell you, I honestly felt like every every series of Sherlock, I find one absolutely riveting, and then the other two less so and then and, and one of those other two i usually find opaque and hard to follow yeah and it's usually written by mark gaddis um and when this week when this week's was over the lying detective i just went all right so that was the really great one right right <laughs> like, i'm afraid of the, of the third one because well I, now it could only let me down well the the, so. the thing is moffat of course wrote the second one and the mm-hmm. second one is so fast and twisty and so many references that get thrown offhand and it's everything I look for in what he writes. Um, but if you don't have the patience for, I mean, I, my wife has trouble with British shows because she has trouble with the accent. She doesn't always catch what the words are and she doesn't always know what the slang terms mm-hmm. are, the, the colloquialisms or whatever. Um, and I think that's probably a lot of people uh, get into that uh, that kind of a reaction, and Moffat is unapologetic in in just throwing that stuff out really fast. The the offhand references to different things about candy or whatever. Um, but if you examine the lying detective, it's brilliant in the way that it's layered and foreshadowed, and just even what what. Uh, Mycroft said, you know, no, we don't have another brother, you know. Right, uh, right. And Although there's another clue, which is you always, right, you always stop with three. Yes, yes. So yeah, there might the rule be of threes sister. idea, yeah. yeah. Or another, there might be another sister as well, you know, so it's, it's there's another clue there. But uh, Yeah, and remember that it? I called it at the end of the Six Thatchers that the, the girl on the bus – was an uncredited character, even though she had a yeah. line, which for me that immediately said, this is not what it appears to be. This is, this is somebody who is more significant than her hair was too red, but she still fooled me. My wife's <laughs> hair is too red too. And she fools me all the time. I know. I know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, this, yeah, this no. is- this is a problem I, I always have with things where people are... I mean, John Watson is not Sherlock Holmes, and he's not James Bond. But, I, you know, I'm not a member of any intelligence agency 
Well, I am not a private detective. Shocking to discover. But when I find it really easy picking up a member of the opposite sex in public, I wonder what the hell they're after and who they really represent. So, <laughs> so I'm, always, I'm always kind of amazed when a guy who's been around spies, who's, whose wife turned out to be an assassin... You know, if I was John Watson and a pretty girl smiled at me on the bus, I, my first question would be, who are you working for? And yeah. my second question is, is this worth the assassination attempt by my wife? Exactly. Then there's that. But you know <laughs> what I mean? It's just that thing of like... Oh, by the way, it's not an attempt. It would be successful. Mary was shouldn't that good. You people, shouldn't you people be just a tiny bit more suspicious? That said, though, I was impressed with the same actress playing the three parts. I yes. didn't spot oh, it. Oh, jeez, yeah. I started to spot it about, I think about a minute before it was revealed, I started going, wait a minute. Uh, that one suffered for me a tiny bit from the, for want of a better word, I'll call it the uh, the Skyfall problem of the villain's plan required a few too many things that were way the hell out of their control. Any more than which villain? Any more than Sherlock being able to predict two weeks ahead of time where everyone was going to be? No, that it makes more sense than that. Yeah. To a degree, but she like you have the two sets of secret motivations going on. You have Sherlock behaving a certain way because he's seen the video and he has to save John Watson, and then you have the sister manipulating. Yes. Yeah, there's just a little and also he didn't recognize his own sister. Then there's that. Yeah, that was a that was Well, he was high. I I get that, but I feel like there's an intrinsic it's sort of, you know, it's yeah. it, it's also I think there's a little blinkered sexism on the part of the writers just like we don't know what was really in George Lucas's head, but the fact that he can Darth Vader can detect Luke Skywalker's presence in a spaceship 300 yards away from him probing his own daughter's mind, he doesn't go this kid's special in some way. <laughs> like, yeah. Doesn't even well, cross he, he, his mind for a second. Well, because I don't think I don't think that you know. There you go. It, it, it was funny because I, I was having to just revisit uh, a new hope uh, from the perspective of 1977. Yeah. And and as I keep arguing with people, don't be fooled. Lucas had no plan or intention for Luke and Leah to be brother and sister in that first movie. Right. There, yeah. you know, he added the, but he's given so many, <laughs> so many interviews in which he's contradicted himself. And, you know, yeah, it's always there. No, I, it, I, I do give him that Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's father. I, I, I think he had that much planned. If only Vader being a word hiding in plain sight, that's a foreign word for father. Um, and I would still argue he must've whispered something in Alec Guinness's ear because the way he, words and describes the death of Luke's father, he is definitely hiding something. This you is know, a week that I've discovered to my to my absolute fault as a as a geek is that I don't have a copy of A New Hope at all. And I need to get one. Wow. <laughs> Desperately and rewind. Uh, I those are you know, yeah. Uh, I, I lost those in the divorce. Uh, so now I need to get uh, need to get new ones. But I want to uh, point out for the lying detective, for those who were distracted by uh, Toby Jones's references to H.H. H. Holmes, there is a great comic book explanation. Uh, of H.H. H. Holmes, of, really? 
uh, Treasury of Victorian Murder by oh, sure. Geary. Yeah. I've done that. But also, I mean, do I feel like, is there something wrong with me that as soon as he said, oh, like H.H. H. Holmes, I went, oh, yes, I know exactly. And then, uh, I got to back away from being enthusiastic about how I know who <laughs> that is. But uh, in the great uh, kind of, I guess it's a nonfiction work, uh, The Devil in the White City. Yeah, uh, that's that's one of my wife's favorite books, and she loves oh, the. I love that book. She loves Rick Geary. The one thing I, we always pick up at Comic Con, we always stop by Rick Geary's booth and buy the latest, whatever he whatever he's done recently that we don't have, because uh, she just loves that stuff. But uh, but yeah, the the one thing about Toby Jones that I was found interesting, I was like, the I found the teeth and the accent really like a strong weird choice until I realized he was Jimmy Seville. Oh. Oh, I didn't even piece that. that yeah, I was so like, what? Toby Jones doesn't need to put funny teeth in and do a weird <laughs> and do a weird fucked up music hall comedian accent to play this part. It's actually incongruous with the part as written. Like he yes. should he should be a smoother guy, shouldn't he? He should be Chuck Woolery, right? I mean, it's a different. But it's Jimmy Seville. It's, you know... Uh, I'm so glad you stuck around to have this conversation. <laughs> Thank because you. I would not have pieced that, you know, because I've only I, I've only seen the photos. I've, I've never watched a video of that, uh, of Jimmy Seville. So, uh, you know, oh, oh. Yeah, it's kind of a creepy... made it even creepier. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was... Yeah, so I, actually, enough for me. I was distracted to the point where I was like, oh, so he's molesting kids. That's what the story is going to be. It's like, no, he's a murderer, but, you know... Uh, yeah, uh, for those listening who don't know who Jimmy Seville is, he was a BBC presenter, famed. Uh, yeah, beloved. Uh, beloved, absolutely. And he did a lot of charity Top work for children's pops. hospitals. Top yep. of the Pops. And it turned out uh, posthumously that his work with the children's hospitals was so that he could uh, molest disabled children. Oh, man. And the uh, hospital, yeah, too, right? Yeah. And, and he was oh, yeah. being, you know, the thing is. That you know the unnecessary sci-fi element in the in the lying detective, Jimmy Seville got covered for by people who were not being drugged, who were not who had heard the confession and were you know like the BBC covered up for him for years, yeah. Yeah. fully knowing his crimes, and none of them had to be fed a forgetfulness drug. You know, none of them were being blackmailed. They were just trying to save face of their organization and not let it out that, you know, like the Vatican. They were they just trying yeah, to save face. Isn't it sad that in our fiction to make it, we have to make it more palatable? Yeah. You know, and say, okay, they were drugged. You know, there's yeah, some kind of element exactly. there. He's evil. The, and the real, about the complicitness. The, the real story of the supervillain TV host is actually too disgusting and evil for an audience to believe. Wow. From the guy who writes Doctor Who. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Well, in another vein, they, they did so many quick flash shots of Toby Jones that I kept on seeing Arnim Zola. Yeah, I, I had that moment, too. Sure. Um, it's hard not to. Come back. Yeah. Uh, so. And also <laughs> supervillain Truman Capote, who he also yes. plays. <laughs> well, he, he uh, Lionel Twain. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we're just going all over the pulp here. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we should end there. I thank you so much, uh, David, for coming on uh, tonight and, and talking about comics and geekery with oh, us. Oh, my and, pleasure. 
So we'll and I'll, let, I'll let you class. know when I can announce the thing that I can announce. And I'll come back Excellent. on and talk about it. What a cliffhanger. All right. <laughs> Excellent. So anyway, thank you all for, for uh, downloading the Fanboy Planet podcast. And, of course, if you have any questions, comments, compliments, commentary, criticism, write in to editor at fanboyplanet.com. I'm Derek McCaw. I'm David Avalone. And I'm Rick Brett Snyder reminding you to use your powers, use your powers, powers only for, for good. And thanks once again to the great Luke Ski for use of his music in this podcast. Visit Luke Ski at www.thegreatlukeski.com. Use your powers powers only for for good. good. (laughs) Somehow we'll all add up. Yeah, we'll see. (laughs) And I apologize. You know, David, I have been leaving the E off when I pronounce your name. I blame Sylvester Stallone, who pronounces his name wrong, uh, and therefore encourages the entire world to pronounce my name wrong. But that's fine. All right. I will do it correctly from here on out. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much. Oh, I my gotta pleasure, get to... Thank you, David. <laughs> Thank you. All right. All right. Good night. Good night. Good night.